Good morning, brothers and sisters. So I've done a lot of wrestling with this passage today, and uh, I'm a little intimidated. <laughs> so I'm going to ask if one or two women in the congregation would be willing to pray aloud for me before I get started preaching. I'm just going to bow my head and trust that this is going to happen. <laughs> Jesus, I pray that you would anoint your servant now to give us your word and that he would wash our feet with it the same way that Jesus washed his disciples. Mm. And Lord, I ask that there would be grace um, on all of our hearts and minds as this word is preached. Lord, I just reiterate the prayer that Avila and I set out in the parking lot that the word would come clarity of mind would just be settled, that the Holy Spirit would fall upon Taylor, and he, when he finishes the sermon, he won't even know what he said, because there will be no words. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. Well, we've been going through this sermon series on 1 Timothy, and this morning we come to what is, uh, without a doubt, the most controversial passage in the entire letter. In fact, it's probably one of the most controversial in all of Scripture. And so you can tell that John Hall has made a strategic absence <laughs> as he preaches uh, at the ordination of Morgan Clark uh, over in Alabama, leaving me here to wrestle with 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. And here in this passage, the Apostle Paul speaks frankly about the roles of men and women. And the church. And this passage is just rife with landmines. I mean, it's the Word of God. So, as Christians, we need to believe that it's good and it's true and it's beautiful. Amen? Amen. And we'll get to all that. But I think it's helpful to acknowledge right up front that this passage is tricky to interpret and hard to ingest. I've mentioned before this preacher friend I used to know, and years back, whenever he would preach on a controversial passage, I would ask him, so how did it go? And he would say, oh man, it was, it was epic. It was a sermon of congregation shrinking proportions. <laughs> and, um, and I think it'd be really easy for a sermon on 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15 to be one of those epic sermons of congregation shrinking proportions. <laughs> So before we dive into the passage, I want to begin by sort of refocusing our hearts on the servant leadership of Jesus. Because even if all this talk about the roles of men and women in the church makes us nervous, I believe there's a sense of safety in the person of Jesus, and that he puts everything in proper perspective. In our gospel reading today from John 13, we see Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Stooping down in humility to wash the feet of his disciples. And, and so, you know, I, I think we probably all know that in that cultural context, foot washing was reserved for only the lowliest of servants. And so Jesus asked his disciples in John 13, 12, he says, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. Now, I think it's important to note that Jesus is not denying his rightful position as their teacher and Lord. Amen? Amen. 
Because to deny his leadership role would be neither truthful nor faithful. But he continues in verse 14. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He said, I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. So by choosing to wash the feet of his disciples, who were indeed his subordinates, Jesus was forever flipping the script, right? And redefining what leadership was to look like in the kingdom of God and in the church of Jesus Christ. This is not the way that people look at leadership in our culture. Uh, I remember um, when Carissa and I uh, uh, were parenting for the first time and we had a Vila. I remember it was so much easier to impress people as the dad. I mean, all I had to do was do something like change a diaper or like get on my knees and like wipe up one mess. And people were like, man, that guy, dad of the year. (laughs) And like, meanwhile, Carissa could clean a hundred messes and change a hundred diapers and nobody thought anything of it. Right. So there was a disconnect between our culture's values and the values of the kingdom of God. And it was made evident in what impressed people. So while Jesus' paradigm of servant leadership isn't the norm in our culture, it did remain the norm throughout the rest of the New Testament. Not only in the Gospels, but I would argue in Paul's epistles as well, especially in them. At no point in Paul is the foot-washing way of Jesus ever replaced by some other worldly standard which is authoritarian or abusive or degrading. Far from it. All Christian leadership, according to Paul, is cruciform. It's Christ-shaped. It's rooted in who he is and what he did. So the true head of the body, which is Jesus, becomes the leader from which all other leadership is derived in the church. Amen. And it must be cross-shaped, full of love and humility. So with all this in mind, and holding the servant leadership of Jesus Freshly in our hearts. Please grab a pew Bible and turn with me to 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. It's on page 991 of your pew Bibles. And remembering the fear and trembling that all Scripture is God-breathed, I want to read this passage aloud for us once more, beginning in verse 8. The Apostle says, I desire that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works, that a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. If you weren't praying for me yet, you better start it. Now, I want to begin by addressing some of the general misconceptions we have about this passage by giving us two basic rules of biblical interpretation. The first is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Can we say that? Scripture interprets Scripture. And the second is that we must distinguish between 
in Scripture between what is universal and what is cultural. Let's start with the first rule, that Scripture interprets Scripture. At the time of the Reformation, the 39 Articles of the Anglican Church declared that, quote, it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. Neither may it be so expounded that one place of Scripture be made repugnant with another. Don't you love that? It's very British. John would be amening me right now. <laughs> that one place of Scripture be made repugnant to another. That is off limits for those who are expounding the word of God. Whenever we come to a passage like 1 Timothy 2 where misconceptions abound and the potential for biases runs high, it's helpful to remember this old maxim that Scripture interprets Scripture. And given this maxim, there are at least five things we know that Paul is not saying about women in this passage. The first is that Paul is not blaming the fall of man on Eve to the exclusion of Adam. If anything, when we read longer passages by Paul on this topic, like Romans 5 or 1 Corinthians 15, we're more likely to get the opposite impression, as if it's all Adam's fault. But the point is, not, the point is that they were both culpable, just in different ways. And in this passage, he's emphasizing something about Eve. Second, Paul is not denying the basic equality of men and women. In the first chapter of the Bible... It is declared that men and women were equally created in the image of God, and Paul reiterates this as a new creation reality. As John Stott puts it, there is no difference between the sexes either in the divine image we bear or in our status as God's children through faith in Christ. Every idea of gender superiority or inferiority is ruled out from the start. So if there's difference in roles, it has nothing to do with superiority or inferiority. Third, Paul is not saying that the church should jettison the ministry of women. If you read the book of Acts or even do a cursory reading in Paul's greetings in Romans 16, you'll see that women had a prominent place in the ministry of the early church. In fact, next week I'll make a case from scripture and history that some women served as deacons in the early church. Fourth, Paul is not saying that women are inherently unreliable as teachers. I think this is an insidious misunderstanding. Some have, in, some have misinterpreted Paul's statement here that, women, that the woman was deceived as evidence that women are inherently unreliable when it comes to teaching God's word. But we know from elsewhere that Paul could not have held this view. Not only did he travel with the husband and wife team of Priscilla and Aquila, who together in Acts 18 teach Apollos the way of God more accurately, but also in Paul's second letter to Timothy and Titus, he commends women for passing on the faith to children and to other women. So why would Paul allow this, much less commend it, if he thought that women were unreliable as teachers? Fifth, in commending male authority in the church, Paul is not actually doing something new. And here I want to encourage you to lean in because I'm going to give you a lot of information rapid fire. In fact, I would call this sermon this morning more doctrinal in nature. So I'm going to stick a little bit closer to my notes. It's going to be a little less off the cuff than you usually get from me. So by this point in his life, Paul had already clarified male headship in the church in 1 Corinthians 11 and 14 and in the home in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. 
From 1 Timothy 3 and from Titus 1, it's plain that Paul restricts the pastoral office to men. And in the book of Acts, we see Paul and the other apostles going around and appointing male elders in all the new churches that they planted around the Mediterranean. Now, you may be saying, sure, but weren't Paul and the other apostles simply men of their times? Of course they would restrict pastoral ministry and family headship to men because it wasn't considered culturally appropriate for women. Sometimes the way that we tell the story, I think we make it seem like the church is solely responsible for perpetuating a patriarchal system and that God and the Bible had nothing to do with it. But is that really honest? I ask us to consider this morning. We must remember when the Lord God himself delivered Israel out of Egypt and he gave them the set of laws and ceremonies and festivals when God essentially gave them a culture from scratch. He had the freedom to form it any way he wanted, according to his will. In fact, if you study the surrounding people groups in the ancient Near East at the time, you'll find that some operated with females as priests. But such a thing was forbidden in the law of Israel. And it was the Lord himself who established the Aaronic priesthood in Exodus and the 70 male elders in Numbers 11. And yes, women had a prominent place in Israel. And yes, they had more rights than any of the surrounding peoples. And yes, we see even women prophetesses and judges in Deborah later on. Praise the Lord. But let's not pretend that the crucial affirmations about male leadership in Scripture were perpetuated by someone other than God himself. And so you may say, sure, but that was the Old Testament. As if the wisdom of God the Father had no cultural reference <coughs> for us today. But we must also remember Jesus himself, who, by the way, claimed that he only did what, the what he saw the Father doing. He also had a decision to make when it came to appointing his apostles. In Luke 6... He spent all night on a mountain praying about it. And when he descended, even though he had both men and women disciples to choose from, he again chose 12 male apostles. So how could Jesus, who freely pushed the envelope with children and Samaritans and foreigners, how could he fail to choose even one female apostle if that was his will for the future of the church? Was this male oppression? Was this injustice? Clearly on this topic, our thoughts are not his thoughts. And yes, Jesus empowered women. I love that about him, don't you? And yes, he received them into his traveling band. And yes, he would go on to die for men and women alike. <coughs> but when it came to appointing the constituent leaders of his future movement, the incarnate word of God maintained this biblical gender distinction. Now, I could go on and on with other examples from Scripture from Genesis 2 onward. So I hope we'll stop blaming the Apostle Paul for something that's clearly established throughout God's Word. In fact, I hope we'll stop playing the blame game altogether. All that's Genesis 3 stuff. Yes, there has been oppression in church history. God even predicted this in Genesis 3. And no... By all means, not all male leaders were Christ-like and willing to wash the feet of the saints. But if God the Father and God the Son 
not to mention the prophets and glorious apostles, if they saw some kind of beauty and wisdom and goodness and affirming male leadership, then that should settle the matter for us, shouldn't it? <coughs> so the first rule of biblical interpretation was that the Scripture interprets the Scripture. The second rule is that we must distinguish between the universal and the cultural. And this distinction is critical for any responsible reader of Scripture because biblical principles are universally binding, whereas cultural expressions are not. As one commentator put it, no word of God was spoken in a cultural vacuum. It is, in fact, the glory of divine revelation that in order to communicate with his people, God did not shout out culture-free maxims at them from a distance. So how do we tell the difference between the universal and the cultural? Well, nine times out of ten, it's actually pretty easy. For example, when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, he told them, you also should do just as I have done for you. Now, foot washing was a part of that culture. It's not a part of ours. So does obeying Jesus mean like, you know, practicing this kind of wooden literalism where we just wash the feet of our house guests whether they want us to or not? Of course not. In our context, being a humble servant might involve cleaning toilets or changing diapers. But it doesn't usually involve literal foot washing. So the biblical principle is humble service and the cultural expression is foot washing. Likewise, looking back at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Paul expresses another universal principle. He wants men in every place to pray. So do you see that? That's it. That's a universal principle. He wants men in every place to pray, to take seriously the call to be men of prayer, not leaving the prayer meetings to be filled up by the women and by the elderly, as they are in many churches. To our shame, guys. In fact, Paul points out that the rightful use of man's hands is for prayer, not for violence. But here he also gives a cultural expression of prayer, namely the lifting of holy hands. And of course, Paul knew that there are many valid prayer postures throughout Scripture, from sitting to kneeling to lying prostrate, and there are many valid uses of our hands. So the universal principle is the call for men to be men of prayer, and the cultural expression is the lifting of holy hands. Are you following me? Now there's something similar going on here in verses 9 and 10 as Paul shifts his focus from the Christian men to the Christian women. Here Paul lists several cultural <coughs> expressions of immodesty. For example, it was common in first century Ephesus for prostitutes to wear their hair in elaborate braided displays with gold pendants and pearls every inch or so. So this kind of hairstyle was totally inappropriate for the women of God, for the women who profess godliness. On the other hand, there are African tribes today where women wear their hair in elaborate braiding and special decoration which are neither expensive nor sexually suggestive. And here Paul's teacher teaching would not apply to them in the same way. So what are the universal principles and the cultural expressions? There are two that we can identify, two universal principles. First, Christian women are to dress with modesty. And second, without costly attire. Now, modesty means that women should take care not to be sexually suggestive or seductive in their choice of clothing, flaunting their God-given bodies as a way of gaining attention. 
And again, there's a strong element of culture in this because what, modest, what counts as modesty in one culture is not always the same as what counts as modesty in another culture. Second, Paul encourages women not to dress in an ostentatious, a showy, an expensive way. In our context, this might include things like designer clothing or cosmetic surgery. Now, this doesn't mean that women need to dress in sort of like a frumpy, joyless, colorless way or without any sense of style or beauty. After all, the glorified church is portrayed in the book of Revelation as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. But the most beautiful way for a woman to adorn herself, according to the scriptures, is with good works, with a life that reflects the way of Jesus. Amen? Amen. To quote again from John Stott, he says, Paul is reminding women that there are two kinds of feminine beauty, physical and moral, beauty of body and beauty of character. And he goes on to say that the church should be a veritable beauty parlor of the second kind. If nature has made them plain, <coughs> grace can make them beautiful. And if nature has made them beautiful, good deeds can add to their beauty. Now, I want to move on from this topic, but if this passage has any women in here wondering, well, what about this outfit? Or <laughs> 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 well, what about this bathing suit? I recommend seeking guidance from one of the mature and godly women of this congregation. <laughs> Now, up to this point in 1 Timothy 2, I'd say it's actually been relatively easy to distinguish the universal from the cultural. But when we arrive at verses 11 and 12, it actually becomes more difficult. There's a good amount of controversy about how to interpret these verses. Paul writes, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, are all these things a matter of unchangeable doctrine, or does Paul continue this pattern of laying out both biblical principles alongside of cultural expressions? In wrestling with this question, Tim Keller, who I greatly admire, warns that many people, in order to make room for an egalitarian position, a position which really minimizes any distinction between men and women, have to do something in the way in which they read Scripture. It loosens how you understand the force of scriptural teaching. And I couldn't agree more. I have known many supposedly Bible-believing Christians who basically dismiss this passage and many like it as culturally contingent, like wearing veils, and therefore irrelevant to the church today. But notice how Paul roots his teaching in Genesis chapter 2. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And in Genesis 3, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. In other words, Paul is rooting his theology in creation, not in culture. Do you see that? And whenever a Bible author wishes to point us to some universal truth that is not culturally contingent, they root their theology in one of three things. The nature of God, so who God is. In creation, so how God intended things to be from the beginning, or in the eschaton, and how, how, God thing, how God will wrap all things up in the end. And when it comes to male headship, I find it incredibly significant that Paul references all three. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, he ties, he ties male headship to the relational nature of God. In this passage, he ties it to creation. 
And in Ephesians 5, he ties it to the second coming of Jesus. That seems like a pretty strong case. Dr. J.I. Packer, the general editor of our ACNA Catechism, puts it this way. He says, the man-woman relationship is intrinsically non-reversible. This is a part of the reality of creation, a given fact that nothing will change. Certainly, redemption will not change it, for grace restores nature, not abolishes it. Grace restores nature, not abolishes it. Again, the more that I read the Bible and try to be honest with it, the more I see, I, the more I, I don't see, excuse me, how a Bible-believing Christian can come out of these passage, passages and deny some sense of male headship or male leadership. And this is a conviction that's shared by my wife, Carissa. But this wasn't always our position. When we were doing campus ministry in our young 20s, we both would have considered ourselves egalitarians drawing no real meaningful distinctions between the roles of men and women. And it was only after we spent many more years in the Word and began having children that we began to appreciate and to submit to God's creational design for men and women. At this point, I would consider myself a biblical complementarian, so would Carissa, meaning that we believe that men and women were created with equal dignity, but they're not the same. For example, based on passages like this, I don't find support in Scripture for the idea that women should become pastors or priests, much less bishops in the church. And this position that Carissa and I share is a majority view down through Christian history. It's by far, by far the majority view in the Christian world today, with the exception of a few sort of liberal denominations for the most part. That God intended for men and women to have different but complementary roles in the home and in the church. Now, having said all this, I want to give a caveat that I tend to view the call for women to learn quietly from this passage and in 1 Corinthians 14. And the corresponding restriction related to this quietness, um, this corresponding restriction against teaching a man as being mostly cultural. And you may wonder why, and my reason again is that Scripture interprets Scripture. This is my best reading of a complex topic. I think the call for women to be silent and not to teach men may have been, at that time, a cultural expression of the universal principle of submission for Ephesus, but it does not seem to be the universal practice everywhere in the New Testament. I've already mentioned Priscilla and Aquila teaching the faith to Apollos on the mission field in Acts 18. But there's also the example of Philip's unmarried daughters in Acts 21 who prophesied to Paul and Luke while they were in Caesarea. And what is prophecy but the heralding of God's word? To these, I'll add the much more obvious example of women being encouraged to prophesy under the appropriate authority in the assembly, as laid out by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. Not to mention the fulfillment of Joel 2 on the day of Pentecost that pro proclaims, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see vision, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Brothers and sisters, we're living in these last days. Ever since Pentecost, it was inaugurated. <coughs> the democratization of prophecy. 
And the church in the New Testament seemed to be, for the most part, walking in that as well. So if you've ever wondered why we allow women to share testimonies in church, to give children sermons, to prophesy, or even occasionally to preach at incarnation, that's why. I don't see the restriction against public, publicly speaking God's word, even among men, to be a universal restriction. But you can see this is a complicated issue. So I, I, you know, I could just say for myself, I wouldn't die on the hill of letting women preach at church on Sunday. If the wider church said no, I would yield. But I would die on the hill of making space for women to use their gifts broadly in the body of Christ. In general, I believe that women were more empowered for ministry in the first century than they have been for most of the years of Christian history since. And it's the responsibility of pastors, according to Scripture, to equip all the saints for ministry and to empower the priesthood of all believers. In my experience, I just want to say as a side note, even the most conservative churches of our day don't tend to apply this rule of silence in some kind of absolute way. Right? Uh, and even more rarely do they make an attempt to follow Paul's teaching of allowing women to prophesy in the assembly. I just don't see that very often. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today. You may be mad at me by this point. <laughs> Using two biblical principles that Scripture interprets Scripture and, that the, and this importance of distinguishing the universal from the cultural, I've sought to chart a course through this, converse, this, this controversial issue in 1 Timothy 2. And if you remember, we started this sermon by focusing on the <coughs> universally applicable servant leadership of Jesus. He said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want to end in the same way, by pointing to Jesus, but from a different angle. Because there's one verse in first, this First Timothy passage that we haven't looked at yet, and it's the one which is potentially the most offensive. In verse 15, Paul declares that women will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, what could this possibly mean? Well, we know that it can't mean that women get into heaven by having babies, <laughs> instead of by grace through faith, because Paul has already made that clear in pretty much every letter he's written. So some have suggested here that the word saved refers to sanctification. Sometimes Paul uses that word to talk about our growing in holiness, not justification. And that perhaps God uses childbirth as a way of making women holy. Now that may be true, but based on Paul's references here in Genesis 2 and 3, I don't think that's actually the best reading. So what's he up to? Well, I'd be grateful if you'd grab a pew Bible and turn with me one last time to Genesis 3. Page 3 in your Bible. Which recounts the story of the fall when humanity forfeited eternal life and was cast out of the presence of a holy God. And specifically, I want us to look at a very mysterious promise from Genesis 3.15, a word of hope that God gives to the woman in the midst of his confrontation with the serpent. The Lord says to the serpent in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And here the Hebrew word for offspring is in the singular, actually, not in the plural. So it's a promise about one of Eve's great, great 
great-grandsons who will eventually destroy the work of Satan, crushing his head. It says, he shall bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent shall bruise its heel. Now, i got to say, from ancient times, the church, God's people, have interpreted this as a prophecy about Jesus' eventual defeating of Satan through his sin-bearing death on the cross. Theologians call Genesis 3.15 the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel promise in the Bible. So as soon as the fall of man happens, there's a gospel promise right away. And I just love this sort of pregnant imagery, too, of God forming for them clothing from skins, from the skins of sacrifice. Thousands of years later, Jesus himself would come and fulfill this prophecy. As 1 John 3 8 puts it, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the destroyer and everything that he has wrought in human history. So right here in the midst of the fall, in the midst of humanity's shame and despair, the Lord gives to the woman this promise of hope. Now recently this verse inspired a very simple but powerful work of art that I want to share with you. The picture is called Mary Consoles Eve. I'll give you a minute to look at that. It was made by a nun from Mississippi back in 2005 using only crayons and colored pencils. <coughs> And it portrays the Virgin Mary giving tender comfort to a naked and ashamed Eve. And Eve, you can see, stands downcast with the forbidden fruit still in her hands and the serpent wrapped around her leg. And meanwhile, the hopeful Mary is directing Eve's hand and attention to her pregnant womb where the promised rescuer is waiting to be born. And just for good measure... Mary is portrayed as stamping on the head of the serpent. And I want to end this morning with this contrasting feminine imagery. With the one woman as the symbol of fallen humanity and the other as the bearer of our redemption. And I want to end here not just because it brings a hopeful note to a difficult passage, but because I believe that Paul is intentionally drawing our attention back to this promise in the garden, back to Eve, the mother of all living, and especially back to Jesus, the offspring that would eventually bruise the head of the serpent. By his own righteous sacrifice on the cross, the bruising of his heel, Jesus has erected a new tree of life, flipping the script on the fall of humanity and bearing within her own body the Son of God, woman has been given the dignity of participating in the redemption of the world in the most intimate way imaginable. So that it can be said, not only were women, not only were women saved through childbearing, but that in the fullness of time, this is the way that God rescues the entire world. Please pray with me. Father, I've tried to faithfully lay out uh, many truths from your word this morning, and I get the sense that um, there are many um, men and women in this church that are going to need a little bit more time to let it percolate, 
And I pray that um, <coughs> as they do that, as, as your word rumbles around in their hearts and in their minds, as they ruminate upon it, your Holy Spirit would be active. Lord, that they would submit to and trust in you. And that if these are indeed your purposes, that we would submit to your purposes. Lord, we thank you that Jesus, in asserting his own leadership, didn't bring us once again back under the yoke of Pharaoh. But he started a new way of thinking about leadership. Servant leadership. Cross-shaped leadership. And I thank you for how clearly the Apostle Paul calls men into that. Not as a right, but as a responsibility. And we pray, Lord, that you would guard your church from dismissing too quickly your words, which to us are life and joy in the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.